Hello, this is Dave Abel, Chief Academic Officer, ELA of Unbound Ed. Today we're going to be talking to Aida Walke. Aida Walke is the Director of the Teacher Professional Development Program at West Ed, where she seeks to improve the opportunities of English language learners by supporting teachers and school leaders in building their expertise to implement the Common Core State Standards. Dr. Walke is a founding member of the Stanford University Understanding Language Initiative. She has also overseen several grant-funded projects and is currently the principal investigator of an IES research project with the goal of investigating promising practices for the education of English language learners. She is also the author of numerous texts outlining the shifts called for by the Common Core State Standards and the implications for ELLs and their teachers. Prior to WestEd, Dr. Walke spent six years teaching high school in Salinas, California, and served as an assistant professor in the Division of Education at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and in the School of Education at Stanford University. Aida, before we talk to you as a professor and expert, we'd like to talk to you as a teacher. What is a touchstone, or what was a touchstone experience in the classroom that you think back to and keeps you going when this work gets frustrating? Well, there are several of those experiences, and of course, they all have to do with students. Um, The first time I taught in a high school, I had already taught in universities in Peru, Mexico, and the UK, and uh, I I thought I was really well-tooled to teach in a high school, and this was in Salinas, California. And uh, not only did I learn tremendously that at first, I really, my knowledge was not where I thought it was in terms of implementation. But what I really loved was the recognition that you can take students who have not been in school for years, and still they can excel in high school and go on to really good universities and a wonderful life. So I'm thinking of uh, a student I had that first year. Her name is Patricia Bolaños. And uh, Patricia, at first in September, was very quiet, but very attentive. And uh, like the second week she came and said, Miss Walke, do you really think I can make it in this class? I said, of course, Patricia, you are wonderful. What do you mean? And she said, well, Miss Walke, I've only done third grade, and then I didn't go to school. And I have to learn English, and I have to do all of this. I said, oh, Patricia, you, you can be wonderful. And that's my job, right, to help you. So just whenever you need help, let's get together. And so we did here and there. And uh, not only was Patricia one of our uh, valedictorians, wow. she was our valedictorian at school, But she did go on, she went to San Jose State, and then I kind of lost track of her. But one day, uh, my husband says, Patricia Bolaños has called you. She wants you to go to the ceremony because she's been named Teacher of the Year. So she had been teaching in San Jose, and she became Teacher of the Year. I could not make it then, unfortunately, because I had some sort of an engagement. But uh, 10 years later, there's a call again. Now she's the principal of the year. And uh, that one I did not miss. But it was so wonderful. First of all, you know, teaching is its own reward. And just to see the eyes in kids shining 
when two ideas gel, something becomes clear. To see their smile when they feel that they're doing work that is intellectually honest and rigorous, and they, they can handle it in spite of whatever language constraints they may have at the moment. So it's those moments that oftentimes when you feel, oh, there's so much to be done, uh, and you go back to those stories and you see a face, you see a smile. Sometimes you even see moments in which students feel a little bit anguished, mm -hmm. but then they breathe and all those are wonderful touchstones in one's career. So let's, uh, let's talk about what you're doing now. So talk to us a little bit about the work you're doing at QTEL mm -hmm. and West Ed and just what, what, you, what you have going on lately. The work that we do is uh, very exciting, very stimulating, because it really started with my years in high school. In fact, some of the lessons and units that we started using in QTEL were lessons and units that I developed for my students at Alisal High School, where I taught for six years. And uh, then I had come to the States from working in other countries, and uh, you know, it never occurred to me that not knowing a language well was a limitation. It had not been uh, a limitation for me except for frustrating moments when I first came to the States and went to college. I couldn't write very well. Mm -hmm. and, but, you know, those were challenges that I overcame with time. And so, to me, it was never an impediment that because you didn't speak a language well, then the materials needed to be simplified, the expectations lowered. But I'm talking about, you know, the early 1980s. And uh, at that time, what really, when I was teaching, uh, what predominated was uh, the notion of simplifying. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what I call the pobrecito syndrome. You know, our poor students, they work so hard. We need to be nice to them. Mm -hmm. And I was never nice in that sense. Um, I was always very high expectations, but I also provided my students high levels of support. And so even back in, in the 1980s, when I was teaching in high school, I, I knew that it was possible to go deep and to go deep in accelerated ways. If you didn't ex expect students to um, know it all in one go, but then I knew, I never knew it all when I first started learning it, that you know, knowledge spirals and the ways of communicating about knowledge also grow the more engaged you are in working through that knowledge. So that knowledge became the base of QTEL, mm -hmm. which started almost 20 years ago at West Ed. And uh, 20 years ago, 18 years ago exactly, um, these notions of depth and acceleration and high challenge and high support were still totally strange in the United States education of second language learners. Almost radical, right? Uh, they were, they yeah. were. And I, so we were uh, then kind of uh, a small group because I had a group of colleagues that I started forming that proposed these crazy ideas. But then some people took us on and it really worked. Um, I guess 
we still are in that sense a little bit boutique <laughs> in the sense that, you know, right now I have a team of 15 colleagues, uh, each of whom is a disciplinary expert. So they are really good mathematics educators, but they also know second language in the version that we use, which is sociocultural uh, learning. And uh, we cannot do a lot because, you know, we can work with four or five districts, three or four schools. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, in the world in which we live yeah. is, is a pressure. But uh, we still are um, on the same road. We have developed immense uh, numbers of materials to do our work. We keep writing and publishing and doing more ethnographic kind of research in our work. So you touched upon this a little bit, but I think it would be really helpful for our listeners to have some historical context. Can you describe how English language learners in most United States classrooms have been taught or serviced in the content areas? Certainly. Well, English language learning today, for the most part in the United States, looks very much like English language learning looked like back in the 1970s. And it is based on a notion of language as form, mm -hmm. and form that is acquired in a linear progression. So you teach, for example, the present simple, and then you have students practice isolated sentences that represent the present simple. Then you move to the present progressive or the gerund, and then, you know, same. And so language and conceptual understandings were really totally separated. So when the idea that you needed to teach English learners subject matter content came up, which was actually back in the 80s when I was teaching, shelter instruction came into place. And so shelter was the idea of protecting students, sheltering them. And that's when the idea of content simplification uh, first really started. But back then, I was totally against that idea. So then shelter instruction um, is about how you baby texts and how you provide lots of support that in the end stifle students' opportunities to develop in rich, accelerated ways, and that really kill their uh, intellectual interest because they are not exciting. They're not exciting for the teacher. So teachers themselves cannot be thrilled about working through these ideas. So it didn't work back then. And unfortunately, it created a whole way of thinking about content and language that was kind of divided and that when it met, it, it was about a reductionist. Mm -hmm. approach. And that is still what I see when I visit classes nationwide. So there are a few pockets where, of places where teachers do think uh, that intellectual rigor is essential and that you don't need to simplify, but you need to instead support students and that they don't need to get everything they're reading, but that teachers need to establish a focus for what is essential to be obtained as a result of engaging in a specific 
reading or activity. So that is the antithesis, right? So on the one hand, we have people who think that you still need to look at language as grammar and as sounds and as words, lexical. And then on the other hand, you have people um, that I subscribe to that think that instead it's about apprenticing into deep disciplinary engagement and that that uh, spirals and that that develops over time if you really bring students texts that are enticing and that does really captivate them and make them build stamina, tolerance of ambiguity, uh, learn to guess better at what they don't understand, uh, and feel overall increasingly accomplished. Can you talk a little bit about the role of a student's home language literacy in this instruction? I don't want to go down the path of talking about bilingual or dual language, although if you want to, you should feel welcome to, but I'm just curious of what the what you would advocate the role of a student's first language or home language in, in being in this kind of instruction you're advocating for. So first, let me say that what is clearly established in the literature, and that is that a well-developed L1 family language really is a good basis for the development of an L2. So, for example, that even takes us to say something that runs counter to what most people think, and that is that the ideal second language learner is not a child. Mm -hmm. The ideal second language learner is a teenager or an adult that is already tooled with reading and writing and thinking critically in their own languages. The only caveat is pronunciation. So students who uh, learn a second language past the age of 9, 10, or 11 will always have a foreign accent. But who cares, right? We all have accents, so some people have domestic accents, others have foreign accents. Yeah, their accents, nevertheless. And we can, you know, learn to understand each other beyond our accents. Now, having said that, in, the, in a class that has only speakers of one language, so Spanish is the case. For example, when I was teaching in Salinas, California, all of my students spoke Spanish, with the exception of one that was Filipino, and could understand some Spanish. Once in a while, especially when teaching students a strategy, a metacognitive strategy, for example, it made much more sense to explain to students in Spanish, look kids, uh, reading is about applying plans of attack whenever we see a problem. Mm -hmm. And we are going to be learning these plans of attack and we're going to be learning them one at a time. And it is not that, you know, some, some kids are born to be great readers and are intelligent, and others are not. Reality is that you learn to build these tools and you become good readers, good students. And that's what we're going to do. And so I would say all of that in Spanish and then immediately switch to English. Mm. So in that context, explaining why we were doing and the value of what we were going to do, right, in Spanish made a lot of sense. 
where it doesn't make any sense is in multilingual classes. Mm -hmm. Because then you're favoring some students over others. You're yeah. favoring the students whose language you can speak. And it doesn't make sense the way it's used now, where you walk into a class and teachers use students' native languages, wh which they don't speak well. Uh, they use them for transition moments. Ahora saquen sus libros, or take out your books, or get your pencils. Well, if teacher says that practically every day, what's the point of saying it in Spanish, <laughs> right? But then when, when the real hard work comes and a little Spanish explanation could be helpful, then it's not possible to have that. So there's a lot of misuse by teachers of the L1, of students L1 in class. Now for students, it really depends. I mean, in bilingual programs, um, there should be a very clear allocation of when you use English and when you use Spanish, for example, the other language, the family language. And I am not one that advocates for mixing the languages in those contexts. Now, if the class is only in English and the students are beginning in their development of English, then uh, negotiating a difficulty in their native languages can be helpful, uh, but that negotiation it takes place for a minute, and then they go back to English. Because if this is the English class, it is extremely important that English be developed. Time is limited. There is a tremendous urgency in students developing the language in rich, deep, generative ways. Um, so then, teacher needs to tell the students, look kids, this is our opportunity, let's not waste it. Which means then that breaks, passing times, and times with the family ought to be in the family language. Uh, one of the most absurd things that has been done in education is to recommend that parents learn some English and that they speak English at home. Mm -hmm. And the uh, that is not only uh, insensitive to the need that families have to talk about delicate issues in familiar ways, in, in the best ways they can express themselves, but it just, you know, parents speak English with a heavier accent than their children. The children don't want to talk to them. Yeah. And so what people don't see is that that causes family breakdown. And uh, with things being so complex today, uh, what we want is families that are united and strong as opposed to families that are debilitated. So which language you use in which moments needs to be always a very careful deliberation by the part of teachers. And the recommendations that they make must always be contextual and understand what the purposes are. And in the end, need to aim for the development of as fully a bilingual as is possible within the structure of the school and the community. So shifting a bit back to content area instruction with English language learners, we've touched upon this a little bit, but I want you to sort of like lay it on the line and talk about what should change in instruction for English language learners and why. 
A lot has to change in the instruction of English language learners uh, in the subject matter areas. And it really begins with providing teachers with opportunities to they themselves examine what they do and why they do it, and considering that what didn't work in the past for our students is not going to work today or tomorrow, especially if we keep doing the same thing mm -hmm. and we want very different results. <laughs> so I do a lot of work with teachers and uh, we begin you know, explaining to them that everything we do is in response to ideas that we have about what works, uh, both in terms of what is language, how languages learn, how subject matter content areas are learned, and that uh, we focus too much on teaching when we should really be focusing more on how do students learn, and thus, how then should we provide them with opportunities to learn. So it starts there. It starts with teachers really acknowledging for themselves that what they are doing now is not producing the results that both them and society wants for our students. And that includes thinking very carefully, and that's difficult to do with the textbooks that we have. And I know you, Unbounded, is very much focused on developing quality materials. But, and that's precisely in response to the horrible kinds of materials that we have in the United States, where uh, chapter one is about this, and chapter two is about that. And there are no connections between chapter one, chapter two, chapter three and where it's a myriad of facts as opposed to going deeply into conceptual understandings and the analytical practices that we run those conceptual understandings through and in the case of English learners and the language that then makes that possible. But that language that makes it possible is not a noun, it's not a word. It has to do with the construction of discourse. So it begins with teachers understanding what is the purpose of this type of text. So if the teacher, for example, is going to be in, in a world history class, is going to be presenting students with, you know, the, the central concept is revolution, and it's going to be the first revolution that is studied in this middle school class, then the teacher needs to understand what is the essence of a revolution. Well, there were things that were this way, the status quo, and then all of a sudden something happened, and that transformed the whole nature of society. And teacher needs to look for wonderful examples that really unpack and focus on those central ideas. So rather than covering 200 facts, we really need to distill to the essence of the conceptual understandings and see how those conceptual understandings link to build structures of knowledge in the discipline. So there's a status quo, there's a disruptive element, and the disruptive element triggers major societal changes that are structural in nature. So then you can work on you know, the Industrial Revolution. Well, there was this wonderful way of producing and materials that in England that happen in cottage industries, and let's look at some examples, 
people raised uh, their own uh, sheep, they sheared them, they cleaned the wool, spun it, and then they had these looms that they had in their own uh, homes and, you know, produced materials. But as they, all of a sudden, the steam engine exists, then life begins to change. And for students, it's fascinating to look at how there were these cottages and families lived like this, and then all of a sudden, cities begin to spring, and the, as cities begin to grow, there are even no, you know, there's no urban planification, right? Mm -hmm. There are no hygienic services, there's no running water, there's epidemics, and then you present students with for example, uh, a schedule that a family now in the city followed, and when they realized that at that time people worked up to 18 hours a day, including children, and that they only had like a break for half an hour, you know, it was like amazing. So that gets students really excited. So it's cutting through, playing that theme, the theme of how life used to be, how it is, what are the main conditions of this new life, and how does that alter the nature of society? How does that create all of a sudden a class, the mill owners, that had a lot and lots of people who had very little as opposed to a more egalitarian kind of system during the cottage industry? So. Going back to what a teacher needs to know, a teacher needs to then know the subject deeply. Uh, the teacher know, needs to not only know what is essential, but have wonderful examples that will captivate the student's curiosity and that thus will present a lure that helps them keep struggling through the difficulty of the language, right? So in terms of language, content is essential. If the content is something that I like and that attracts me, then I'm going to keep insisting on working on it. But if the content is simplified and is boring, or if there's a list of facts that do not seem any of them to make much sense, but an accumulation of ideas, then I don't want to struggle. I don't want to really put the effort into getting nothing. And then the nice thing is that this content then becomes generative because then you move to the Russian Revolution. And students now, the teacher can say, so what do you expect to happen? Mm -hmm. And they have the central constructs that will help them understand we know what a revolution is. So what was the status quo in this one? And what happened as a result? And what were the changes? So that needs to change. Now, going back to language, Instead of working on the, for example, this is a cause-effect type of essay mm -hmm. that students read, instead of working on what are the difficult words here, it's important that students understand first what is the purpose of a text that lays out causes and effects. What does that tell me about a situation, a, con a content. And then what kind of language is used to announce the beginning of that type of essay and the moves between ideas? So that if I know the language, I may not understand a lot, but I know that the word finally 
is already introducing an idea that is going to close the essay. Or if I, if I see the word meanwhile, it's going to introduce an idea that run parallel to whatever happened before. And so students need to get these almost physical reactions to words that mark key moments and moves in a text. And then, of course, there will be the specialized language that comes, but the specialized language is not pre-taught to students, but it is taught as ideas are developed. So the lesson that I am kind of outlining for you is a very different lesson than a lesson that says, let's look at this paragraph, uh, how many sentences does the paragraph have, which sentences are simple, which are complex, and you know, which really totally decontextualizes language from the flow of ideas. And uh, once in a while, however, even in a lesson like the one I'm suggesting about revolutions or lessons about revolutions, you do notice that students tend to fall into the same error and you say, okay, kids, we're going to have now a grammatical parenthesis. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you explain something. Oh, yes, whenever we say, and they were, uh, or whatever, you, you do the explanation, and then you say, okay, parenthesis closed, yep. let's go back. Yep. So it's a little parenthesis where you highlight a linguistic issue, but it is understood as that, as an interruption to the key idea that has us here working together, which is understanding concepts, understanding their importance, and as we build that knowledge, making that knowledge be transferable to other contexts and other situations. So with the kind of change in instruction that you just delineated for us, have you seen in your work in schools really innovative solutions that are match this description? Have you seen this in action? Oh, yes. When, when teachers uh, understand these ideas, you invite them to read, discuss, observe their own lessons, their classes. And uh, when you accompany them as they plan and as they enact new lessons, they develop a new sense of professionalism. I mean, mm -hmm. you can see their own agency shifting. We talk a lot about how you develop student agency and voice. Teachers themselves develop agency and voice. And they, in lots of parts of the country, we are really trying to now move from a whole period where there were lessons that were scripted for teachers. Mm -hmm. And scripted lessons really deprive them of their ability to think, to be creative, to respond in the moment to students, which is the hallmark of great teaching, being contingent. Uh, responding to whatever emerges that is worth pursuing. And of course, knowing when whatever emerges that it can be put aside, then you say to kids, yes, in a couple of weeks we can talk about that. So yes, I have seen it. And it works best when you work with a whole school. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, we have uh, many videos from a school in Fort Worth, Texas, where we worked with all the teachers for three years. 
uh, is the International Newcomer Academy. And uh, it's wonderful. Uh, in fact, uh, I will show you one video tomorrow, but what kids can do after being in English only for five weeks, what they can do on the six week in subject matter content classes, when all the teachers are aligned yeah. with the same practices. They believe this is the way students learn. They plan lessons so that that happens. And there's a lot of coherence across the school that happens. Or people who have not worked with us, but uh, for example, the internationals in New York City, especially the original international, LaGuardia Community College. I, I haven't, we, my team didn't work with them except once in a while we went to visit and do a little lecture to their teachers. They really were able to get students very intellectually engaged, but there was tremendous consistency mm -hmm. across all teachers. And so one teacher alone can do a lot, but not enough. Mm -hmm. And not enough for lots of students. So the more we help whole staff at a site uh, embrace the same way of thinking, embrace the same practices, use the same language, invite students into uh, tasks that look similar and offer them the routine expressions that cut across disciplines or that are specifically uh, disciplinary, then the better it works. But whenever you have just two teachers yep. with one idea and two teachers with a different idea and three teachers doing something else, poor students then choose, right? I don't go to second period, but yeah. I go to third period. And I hate fourth period, so I just kind of, you know. Yeah. Kids really understand that people respond to different ideas and that engage them in different practices and they know what which ones are good and which ones are not. I, I'm looking at this quote and I don't know if this is attributed to you. I think it might be. But the know. quote is, to learn a language, students need well-structured opportunities to practice it. Does that sound like something you would say? Yes, yes, uh, okay. definitely. So we'll attribute it to you. So this quote, it feels like common sense, but... I think there's some nuance there because obviously what well-structured well means to me might mean something different to you. And I'm wondering if we can ask you to describe a well-structured opportunity to, to learn a language. Like well-structured opportunity rather to practice a language. What does that look like? What is a well-structured opportunity? Well, a well-structured opportunity is half of the picture because that deals with the planning. So you're, as a teacher, you're thinking, oh my God, I need to teach Macbeth to my students, and they barely speak English, and I'm going to take them to Shakespearean language. <gasps> so how do I do that? And then you begin thinking, and if you have these ideas that you engage your students in rigorous interactions, then you may, for example, which is in fact one of the activities we have for our big lesson uh, on Macbeth, you select key phrases from Elizabethan English that are in Macbeth. And before they read, you have students read something about Elizabethan times, the role of theater during times, Shakespeare, and then, you know, so they do a jigsaw, they have a little bit of knowledge about that, which is all done in modern English and well scaffolded. But now you want them to engage with the real language. So you have this list 
of 15 phrases, you know, beguile the moment, and, you know, words that we don't use anymore. And they have their translation on the side. Mm. And so you say to students, look, kids, these are all phrases that Elizabethans use to mean what follows after it. And now, working in your groups of four, you are going to think of a situation where a wife wants to convince her husband to do something he doesn't want to do. And what you need to do is you need to plug in 10 of these phrases in your dialogue. And so students have 10 minutes to write their dialogue. They all keep a copy of the dialogues, and then they kind of represent them. So the students have used the language. They have demystified Shakespearean English. You know, it's not like this very weird thing. In fact, everybody spoke like that. And furthermore, what you have done is you have taken them one step into the theme. There's this wife that wants the husband to do something he doesn't want to do. Well, that's what's going to happen in Macbeth. Lady Macbeth is going to want this, that, and the other. And the, the kids have written English together because they constructed this dialogue together. They all uh, rehearsed it. Then they got to present it, and the whole class was, you know. Um, and they, we've seen kids really doing wonderful things with this. It's just one activity of many, yeah. right? But the activity has been very carefully thought out. So, uh, and the activity is well-structured in that sense. Uh, because it enables all students, not everybody perhaps contributes to the dialogue in suggesting what other line may husband and wife say, but they all write it down. They all rehearse it, so they're using the language, and they're all performing it. So they're using that language three times, and they are losing their fear for Elizabethan English, and they already have a little bit of an outline of what may be coming later on. So, as I say, that's just a task that takes students 15 minutes in preparing to read Macbeth. But uh, it has been carefully thought out, it has been carefully structured, and then there is always the emergence of novelty because although students have this to use basically the same phrases, there's only 15 of them and they have to use 10, the situations they all come up with are really different from each other. Mm -hmm. So they're all very excited to hear what other groups have come up with. Uh, that's just one minor illustration, but there are multiple of them. In fact, the favorite way of structuring for us is doing all kinds of jigsaws. Because the jigsaw uh, activity is premised on the notion that Students specialize in developing understandings about one piece. And then they come back together and they need to share their piece. And it's all the pieces together that help them now solve an issue that is presented to them. Uh, and that uh, reflects a very important notion in developing a second language, and that is that you don't want to talk about that which you and I know about. Uh, when I talk to you, I want to hear what you have to say that is novel to me. And that's what triggers not only the idea that 
I am engaged in the dialogue, but it also builds uh, some sort of good feeling that together we construct this larger understanding. Uh, and so whenever teachers have students repeat things that are the same, it's not only boring, but it's anathema to real um, academic activity or personal activity. So we have six different types of jigsaws that you know we offer teachers and that enable them to really construct different types of engagements, but where what each student learns becomes pivotal for um, being shared and then doing something else together. You, you've touched upon this, or I think you've touched upon it. Maybe you're going to correct me. But a term that you use and that you've used in conversations we've had is language amplification. What is it, why is it important, and where does it fit into a class? Language amplification is uh, stating the same idea two or three times, but in different ways. So it's very simple uh, with words. For example, a teacher may say, there's a caveat, there's a stipulation, there's something you have to do, Mm -hmm. right? So caveat is the word that students don't know, and it comes first, but then stipulation, and if the teacher writes it on the board while while he or she says it, uh, it's a cognate, because in Spanish, if a student speaks Spanish in his class, uh, in Spanish it is estipulación, so it looks the same, although it doesn't sound the same. But then the third time, there's something you have to do. Uh, Then really reveals the meaning of the word. So that's one way. But another way is by adding adjectives, right, to uh, a statement. So you say that terrible, horrible, awful man, something like that. I don't know. And so if you don't catch one, you probably catch the second or the third. So being able to understand is predicated in the redundancy of the message. Uh, As I am talking to you, for example, I am using intonation to mark what I think is most important. I am changing the rhythm in which I speak. Sometimes I say things slightly faster, sometimes I slow down. But I don't slow down because I think you don't understand me and I need to slow down for you. I slow down for effect. But more importantly, I am marking my words with my body. I'm moving my hands, I'm moving my head. All of that creates redundancy, communicative redundancy. So even if you didn't hear me, I said, and I felt, and you don't hear how I felt. You look at my face, And it couldn't have been happy because the face is frowning, so it must be something bad, right? So that redundancy helps you. In fact, uh, Charles Hawkins, a very old linguist in the 1950s, said that, you know, language is about 80% redundant. Our communication is predicated on that redundancy because we're not always 100% on (laughs) listening that attentively, but we get the gist, and we repair what we didn't hear, and all of that. But if we simplify and deprive language of that redundancy and delete the connectors, because the connector makes a complex sentence and we only have to have simple sentences, as you are deleting the howevers 
and the, you know, because. You are deleting the logical links that bind two statements, and you are destroying then the relationship, the semantic, the meaningful relationship. So while well-intentioned ideas that texts need to be simplified, whether they're oral or written, are totally wrong. English learners need amplified texts, and teachers need to learn how to amplify because an amplified message is a message that will have that redundancy that will make it easier to understand. Would you agree with the statement that teachers are the gatekeepers of language in the classroom? And if so, what can we do to make sure that gate is always open? I wouldn't exactly say it that way because it sounds very negative, right? Mm-hmm. I, I Perhaps you turn it positively and say, teachers invite students into the world of language. <laughs> and the, what that would mean would be that everything the teacher does, the text a teacher selects, the abundance that the teacher builds around, that has to be meaningful. These word walls drive me crazy. I don't know what the word wall, you know, you see, you see there antithesis, and then you see green, and then you see obstacle, <laughs> and then you see, and you say, what is this? At least if word walls were semantically linked, conceptually uh, grouped, then that would make some sense. But I think that, you know, in general, teachers model what they want their students to do with language. Mm-hmm. And so... Teachers need to use language in wonderful ways. Teachers, because they need to want, they need to have students want to be use the language like them, and one day better than the teacher. Right? That's what I always used to tell my students. They say, "Oh, Miss Welke, but you speak English so well." I said, "Well, yes, but you know, I wasn't born speaking English. I learned English when I was 20 years old." You can do it. You're younger than me. You can do it way better than I can. And so in that sense, teachers model and support and encourage the use of language by providing all these opportunities and texts and activities that make it really enticing for students to engage I used to love that at the end of the year, it became kind of a tradition in my class. All of my classes wanted to play me. They wanted to have like the closing show was, we'll pretend we're Miss Walkie. And it was always so funny to me, like how much they knew about my, I I, I discovered what I said by Mm -hmm. how they played me. And Mm -hmm. somebody would play me and somebody else would jump in and play me and somebody else would jump in. But, you know, the words they used were all big words, important words. And the way they said it, it was with pride and joy. And when they did that, I thought, oh, I'm not such a bad teacher (laughs) after all. (laughs) Because, you know, we, we do invite our students into that wonderful world of language. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been wonderful. 